Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is Paul Axton, and I'm here this morning with uh, Jason Rodenbeck, and we're going to uh, discuss this morning stories, narratives, and poems. Maybe in this dark moment, uh, it's time to take a, a very different view of things. And of course, the idea, the understanding here is that narrative or stories or poems uh, in some way are, are very much tied into a biblical notion of reality. That is, if we think of scripture as uh, a first order reality or pointing us to a first order reality, well, that is a narrative reality to be found in Christ, the story of Christ. And so it's not as if I think uh, that very often in biblical hermeneutics or people that depend solely upon the historical critical method or that they imagine that narrative is secondary. And so we're kind of doing this podcast with the idea this isn't secondary. In fact, this is the very meaning of life. This gets to the very substance of life. And so it's not an addition but it's an insight to the very core of reality. Have I overstated it, Jason? <laughs> it was a far more thoughtful start than I had anticipated. But um, as you're saying that, I was thinking, well, you know, the Old Testament doesn't really begin with a systematic approach to who is God and what does all this stuff mean. It actually starts with a story and it tells a lot of stories and then throws in some poetry, then some letters and some sermons and some more poetry and then some more stories. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then the gospels are basically four versions of the same story reorganized for different purposes. And then uh, the rest of it is stories and letters and poems, and then a, a very long poem at the end. So yeah, it, as much as it might be fun to take it apart and try to put together and all these little epistemological puzzles and theological puzzles, the simple truth is it's a story. We're part of a story. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think so. What we're hoping to do is read some poems and read some stories with the presumption that story is the shaping force, poetry is the shaping force in our life. Now, I don't think we need more justification, but let me give you a little more to set the context. There's a researcher, a, psych a psychiatrist, medical doctor, and he has spent much of his life studying the brain. His name's Ian McGilchrist. I hadn't heard of him till just actually just yesterday. And McGilchrist then describes the world. You know, we I think we've all heard of the kind of the left brain, right brain understanding. He, he debunks a great deal of that, suggesting that maybe too much has been made that actually when you get into brain science, that it's not as if you can divide up the linguistic side of the brain to the left brain or the abstract side or pictures and uh, to the right. On the other hand, he does acknowledge or, in, in fact, support the notion that in a kind of left-brain world, that what it counts as important is a seeming 
factuality. And what, what we take as fact or the real world, of course, ends up not being fact or reality at all. It's just what we imagine like mathematics or something on the order of computer code. And he describes then the, the modern world, modernity itself, the fascination with a kind of atomistic, reductionist, computer-driven, technological age as a kind of left-brain world. And of course, his point is that this is, in fact, on the order of something of someone who has suffered a kind of brain damage or someone who is attached then to only one hemisphere of their brain. And that a right brain understanding, it certainly depends upon or requires the left brain. But what holds everything together is the ability for abstraction the ability to put things together. And I think that's really what narrative does for us. Interestingly, then, the frontal lobe, the very front of the frontal lobe, is primarily in the business of inhibiting parts of the brain from interfering with other parts. Given the uh, incapacity of the frontal lobe, what happens is that our left brain sort of factual, reductionistic, what is actually a kind of unreality takes over. It, what is happening in scripture, or at least an appreciation from scripture from a narrative point of view, is actually to tie into this. It's a very different sort. You know, this is very much over and against what uh, usually happens in brain science. It's precisely those people who tend to be very reductionistic, and McGilchrist sort of laughs at that whole. He, he's very dismissive of that understanding that would reduce the mind to the brain. So there's a little bit of further justification. Give us, you know, Wendell Berry. Describe then what Wendell Berry is doing or sees his writing, what role it's serving. We moved to Berry because that's been a huge influence, I think, on well, it's been an influence on me, and I think on some level it's been an influence on the Plowshares community and the movement here. It probably will help to, to draw some conclusions then about, based on the, the right brain, left brain piece there, the sort of raw logic, fact-based. Although what we're seeing play out politically and culturally is a battle over what, <laughs> what really are the facts. But that can happen when you've abstracted left brain factuality from the story of people in the world itself. Right now, what's the big question in our country during the COVID-19 crisis, and it is a crisis, is should we really be willing to make sacrifices to the economy in order to save the lives of people who may or may not be able to contribute a great deal to that economy. In fact, the tweet from Scott A. McMillan that has made the rounds was, he said, the fundamental problem is whether we're going to tank the entire economy to save 2.5% of the population, which is, one, generally expensive to maintain, and two, not productive. And I, I use the word right thinking, not in the right-left sense, but in, pro, in cor correct thinking, a lot of correctly thinking people have said that is evil. There are a lot of folks who are having a hard time understanding why, even though they've, they claim to be followers of Jesus, are having a hard time understanding why that is indeed evil. 
I think when you bring up Wendell Berry, what Wendell Berry has been saying for a generation, that that is evil, but that that is not new. That has always been. Wendell Berry's uh, context has been growing up as a farmer and watching the way the business of farming changed into a, a corporate business rather than a family business. And so a lot of his work is about the pain that happened in that. If you don't mind, I'll just jump right to one of his poems from The Mad Farmer. This one is called The Reassurer. His take is on what are we willing to sacrifice for progress? What are we willing to sacrifice for the economy or the uh, the objective? These are all terms he'll use with the word the the economy, the objective, or for prosperity. This poem is from a a collection I've kind of kept with me for several months now. It's in my backpack all the time. It's called The Reassurer. A people in the throes of national prosperity who breathe poisoned air, drink poisoned water, eat poisoned food, who take poisoned medicines to heal them of the poisons that they breathe, drink, and eat. Such a people crave the further poison of official reassurance. It is not logical, but it is understandable, perhaps that they adore their president, who tells them that all is well, all is better than ever. The president reassures the farmer and his wife, who have exhausted their farm to pay for it, and have exhausted themselves to pay for it, and have not paid for it, and have gone bankrupt for the sake of the free market foreign trade, and the prosperity of corporations. He consoles the Navajos who have been exiled from their place of exile because the poor land contains something required for the national prosperity after all. He consoles the young woman dying of cancer caused by a substance used in the normal course of national prosperity to make red apples redder. He consoles the couple in the Kentucky coal fields who sit watching TV in their mobile home on the mud floor of a mined-out strip mine. From his smile, they understand that the fortunate have a right to their fortunes, that the unfortunate have a right to their misfortunes, and that these are equal rights. The president smiles with the disarming smile of a man who has seen God and found him a true American, not overbearingly smart. The president reassures the chairman of the board of the Humane Health for Profit Corporation of America, who knows in his replaceable heart that health, if it came, would bring financial ruin. He reassures the chairman of the board of the Victory and Honor for Profit Corporation of America, who has been wakened in the night by a dream of the calamity of peace. Wow. Mm. Wow. Wow. If you tell me that that's not a prophetic poem, then I would ask you to read anything from Hosea or Amos. <laughs> to follow that up, let me turn to Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. This is Wendell Berry's his response to how we are a liberation front against exactly that. Manifesto, the Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. 
and you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world, work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all of the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest in your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the notions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary. Some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Wow. Well, again, you, you can't say it better than that. We're all in, the, in a moment in which perhaps the drive to profit through pharmaceuticals, the drive to profit through chemical companies. I don't know if you've seen the movie Dark Waters, but you could repeat that story again and again, where people driven by profit are willing to sacrifice. In the case of Dark Waters, they were willing to sacrifice a whole town. And actually, even now, we all carry the markers of the chemical that went into producing uh, Teflon. They say that every living human being now carries that, that chemical marker. What is posed in Barry is an alternative reality. He's saying, okay, you can check out of this thing. I, I just don't know how you could do that better than through poetry. Let me read one of his that gets, I think, at the, the peaceful side, and he calls it the peace of wild things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, 
who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. What I think Wendell understands better than anybody that I've read outside of Scripture, and I, I say that understanding exactly the seriousness of that claim. I don't know anybody that understands it better than this. A truth that I have, I struggle to hold, and it, it came became obvious for me that I was still struggling with it in that I find myself constantly thinking in terms of big solutions, big problems. Barry can understand the big problems, the real problems of, of power, of corruption, and evil, and sin, and all of those things, and can remind himself, and I think it's because he spent so much time on a, on a small plot of land farming it, and found his peace there, can understand that that to turn, and this is a direct quote, to turn to big power solutions to these big power problems is again going to be a problem. And so there's a, a recent interview, and I won't be able to remember all the details here, where a person who reminds me of me quite a bit, actually, in his desperation to, to solve all of these big problems and what Wendell keeps saying is, okay, so what are you going to do about it? You're right. I mean, these things are corrupt. These leaders are corrupt. What are you going to do about it? You're not going to solve, even my dad told me one day, he said, you're not going to solve world hunger, but you can feed your neighbor. The leadership of our country is is considering sacrificing the lives of the most vulnerable in order to save the economy. Well, that's evil, and it's cruel. And I'll say it's evil just so that the folks I know who are Christians who will know that I think that it's evil. But the simple truth is I'm probably not going to change their mind. What Wendell turns to is how do we live a life of peacefulness and resurrection? Well, we do it by abandoning the idea that we're going to ever have enough power to fix it. And we're going to have to find peace and find truth and find joy in these small things and in this life of practicing resurrection in a world that is intent on destroying itself. I'd like for you, and I will do the same, to turn to stuff that we ourselves have written. I wanted to ask you about your piece that you wrote last week. It wasn't, strictly speaking, I guess a poem, but I thought it was very poetic. It reminded me of Wendell because there's a segue here in that not only does Wendell write poems, but he writes stories. And the stories are all very much about specific people in community who are part of a, a membership with each other. And it's always messy stories of really flawed people. And there's almost never like these deep resolutions, how people work things out. It's just how people live in these crazy situations with each other. And your piece that you wrote last week. Yeah, it was called Liberty, which is the name of our little church. I don't know that I was clever enough to mean it as a double entendre. But of course, that's really, I think, what's there is that, uh, that in finding a community, 
you do find freedom, you do find liberty. And so I was, I'm not sure that carried through, but I hope it did. The way you described the the church and the different people and compared it to things, there's humor throughout it. Like between the, the church and the cemetery is a wide rolling green lawn. Doug Sider comes out each week to mow, sloping into thick woods behind the church, which during deer season sounds like an artillery range. Last Sunday, as I walked into the church, which is on what Missourians call a knob and so forth, an expansive view, I counted 10 different bird calls. Rosemary figured there would have been killdeer, robins, warblers, and field sparrows, but she suggested I may have overestimated in my account. I felt like as I was reading it, this is peacefulness. There's no great big solution to all of this stuff that we're going through. It's just a turning to each other and a living in a small community mm-hmm. of people that knows each other really well. I used to go to these kind of places and think, well, I'm going to be a great preacher someday. I'm not going to be in a little place like this. And I've spent the last 10 years regretting it, wishing I was in a little place like that yeah. again. <laughs> Um, what 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 inspired yeah, you to yeah. write that one that piece? I'm not saying in this that all little churches are equal, and maybe this is my prejudice. But I just th- this is a unique little church. Both Larry and Dale, who are two elders, Larry and Dale are brother-in-laws, as often is the case in a little country church. Many of the people are interrelated. They've all been in this community, most all of them, all of their lives. Dale, is uh, he's retired, but Larry has a ranch, and, and they don't even call it a ranch. That I think uh, Larry's reaction to saying ranch would be, well, that's too grand. I'm just a farmer. In the story, I tell the story one day in church. I mentioned that to him. You know, I used to live in Texas. He has more cattle than people that I knew in Texas. And in Texas, what you would do, if you had a ranch, you would wear a big cowboy hat. You'd have a a big belt buckle and big boots. I'll read this paragraph. Besides raising cattle, Larry had a career as a science teacher, a basketball coach, and for many years was an elected representative on the local rural electric co-op. I once pointed out to him that by Texas standards, he owned more cattle than most, and yet he did not dress the part, big hat, boots, etc. He explained to me that his father had taught taught him never to be presumptuous, and for that reason, he said he was even hesitant to wear a cap. And by the way, Larry's bald, so this is a painful decision. (laughs) As it might seem as if he were trying to be what he is not. Uppity would be the last word I would associate with either Dale or Larry. Dale, retired for many years, is a skilled woodworker, though the missing fingers on one hand testify to a major mistake. I explained to him that in Japan, the missing digits would mark him as a particularly mean mafioso. I don't know if that's self-explanatory or not, but in Japan, you know, you cut the parts of the finger off, uh, the, the Yakuza or the, uh, the, the mafia as a kind of sign of repentance. 
you know, and so Dale has the, the, his one hand is missing parts of several fingers. But in his quiet humility, he may have missed the incongruity. In this piece, it also, it, you go on and there's a conversation between these people with such different viewpoints, like Larry's theologizing, Lois's exhortations, Dell's storytelling. And this is this is a piece that I, when I read it, I thought I've got to get better at this. <laughs> We're talking about an issue, and and everybody had a completely different take on it. Some of them were really wild and and out there, and I wanted to correct it so bad. And the, the story left it unresolved and just said everybody felt good about it after that. And I thought, oh my god, that is, I think, going to be the way to peace. I that's for me. I've I've just wanted to change people's minds so bad, and I can't. And mm-hmm. it's very difficult for me to be willing to accept that I'm going to have to still live in in peace with people who are just not going to ever see things right. <laughs> Which, right. Uh, this is, yeah, this is, uh, in a way, this is something, you know, uh, that I've come to an old age. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, for most of my life, I've felt the need. Well, I probably need to correct that understanding. And I think this is really something that I've learned from being in this little church, that there is just a kind of caring acceptance. I'll read the paragraph and then I'll I'll explain. Sunday school this week on consequences for injustice brought out a predictable turn in which Lois, our Quaker member who also follows the unity movement out of Kansas City, clearly has the brightest perspective. Larry pointed out that a nation cannot survive where basic honesty and human decency are no longer honored. I'll add a footnote here. This, you know, it's a kind of unusual group in Little Dixie in northern Missouri. These are not your typical right-wing Republicans. There is nothing worse than a liar, according to Larry, and he presumes America cannot continue on its present path. An early sign of this which I'm not sure I completely comprehend as I do not follow basketball, is, as Larry explained, the defection of Lou Alcindor to the Muslim religion. Louis Alcindor, in Larry's book, is one of the most morally upstanding of human beings, and when he became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, this was a sign the universe was out of kilter. I pointed out that we could add a long list of black Christians turned Muslim, but Larry seemed unimpressed with my examples. No one is apparently is in the same orbit with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Lois brought a more positive note, pointing out that the Christ within, which is a phrase she often uses, does not depend upon this particular political moment. Even Hitler, she explained, would be given many chances in his multiple reincarnated states. I'm never quite sure if we are all exactly on the same page, but everyone seems satisfied. <laughs> that was it. Because I can tell you, I've, I've known a lot. Of, I had students that would talk about reincarnation in my, in my 
Christ, my uh, Life of Jesus classes in my, uh, and even in uh, other conversations, and I'm always quick to say, no, I you can't do reincarnation and resurrection. Uh, but for some folks, it just doesn't. That is just not a thing that they struggle with. <laughs> and I've always felt like, oh, no, well, you can't believe that. But when you just left it there, I thought, now that – Maybe that's the most peaceful way. I, I don't know. I, I I don't. It's just not clean. It's not clean, and it's not. And I fought with it, but it was beautiful. I. It was just that that the end well, of you that got You got to understand. Maybe that Lois, you know, is eighty years old or more than eighty. She's quite a character. Uh, just a lovable character. In fact, she was calling me. That was who was calling me during the podcast here. Uh, and so we usually, her and I go out and walk uh, once or twice. We haven't during the COVID virus uh, because she's a, a widow and she's been through three husbands and they've all been, you know, they've all been unique characters and she just has this wonderful love for life and people and so uh i don't think at 80 she's gonna make any grand drastic changes yeah no not uh, like but i can and so i think in, in a way what i've learned you know uh is well you just you kind of just accept people where they're at you love them for who they are and that's the very often uh, the peaceable thing to do. And that that has been a thing that's been getting to me. A lot of my life was, and still is, I shouldn't say was, because I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I've arrived yet. <laughs> but a lot of my decisions, the things I've wanted, have been about a sense that I was going to achieve a certain level of greatness or that I was going to, and it was about me. I was in a conversation with Vanjie several weeks ago. She said something to me, and I'm trying to make sure I capture it right. We were we were disagreeing in in the way that we often disagree, which is that we find out that I'm I'm not quite as right as I thought I was. That's always disappointing. <laughs> she yeah. She turned to me and she just said, "You've got to get out of your own head." And the way she said it. I realized she was right. I was really wrapped up in my own thinking. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't able to step out of it. I, I spend a lot of time at work. I get. I take frequent walks, and there's a um, there's a poplar tree, and right now it's actually starting to bloom. It's going to start getting those little green and pink flowers on it. It was kind of gray and windy. I wrote this little piece back in January. I called it "In My Own Head." I stood under the poplar tree this early gray winter's morning, the foggy air sharp with cold, biting my ears and nose. I sighed looking up at its bare wet branches and my warm breath blew and then vanished in the quick misty breeze. I thought of the wisdom of her words. You're too much in your own head. And knowing she was right, I began plotting my escape. <laughs> I like it. I like and it. I think since then I've been trying to figure out how to get how to get out of my own head long enough to find some peace and beauty 
that's that's out there, I realized that there's a lot there's a lot of beauty that's still out there. And if we're going to survive things like COVID-19, which as crises go is relatively mild compared to the Black Plague and AIDS epidemic, all of which were exacerbated by the same kinds of corruption and evil that is out there today. If we're going to witness to the peace of the resurrection of Christ, then we're going to have to find ways to turn away from cynicism, which I fall into cynicism so easily, and focus on what's good and peaceful and true and right. And I think that's going to end up being stories and people and the Lord working through people and finding beauty and practicing smallness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.